friends, we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel, and discerning listeners will notice I am probably a little bit more coherent and awake than Ira is because he spent the weekend <laughs> at Coachella and then flew back to New York, whereas I just played word games with friends over here. So if I seem sharper, <laughs> that's what's going on. Um, I have to start this episode off with um, an inquisition. Angry as hell. I don't blame you. I am mad as hell. And this episode of Keep It, um, we're just getting right to the point with Coachella and how Frank Bin Laden will be charged <laughs> with treason. He will pay for his crimes. I've never heard of an L like this in any kind of festival history <laughs> of just he didn't deliver or bailed on his own concept which was, I guess, a bunch of ice skaters were supposed to be behind him at this Coachella thing, which would have been decadent and, you know, queer for all the queer people there. And he <laughs> was not a fan of that concept suddenly and scrapped it. And then the dancers who were on ice skates were suddenly walking around behind him. And you know what was equally as treacherous to me? I watched some of the live stream of Coachella. And I'll, I'll be honest, I did not realize that they broadcast it so, so amazingly. Like, you can watch all these mm. stages all the time. And they were getting close-ups of the audience. Uh, if I were in that audience, I would not love you looking at my face. Uh, <laughs> I kept thinking of the people standing there and the pupils were looking. It was giving they ate the bad berries. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, yeah, so Coachella was this weekend and the headliners were Frank Ocean, a criminal. We'll get to him <laughs> in a minute. Um, Blackpink and Bad Bunny. Um, of course, Blackpink was sort of a pseudo headliner because calvin harris returned to the desert um this year i love that i love that all the um announcements for calvin harris this year were calvin harris returns to the desert sort of like the end of a marvel movie where it's like <laughs> calvin harris will return yeah mad max calvin Guardians. harris road yeah <laughs> um so he played after black pink but the headliner seemed solid frank ocean was originally booked for 2020 to play Coachella. Um, but we all know what happened there with COVID. Um, it was originally Frank Ocean, Travis Scott, and Rage Against the Machine. When the festival was rescheduled, Rage Against the Machine dropped out, and Travis Scott, um, you know, since he killed a bunch of people at Astro World, um, was not a headliner anymore. Uh, and so last year we had different headliners because, um, Frank wasn't ready to do the show then, but he came back this year. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of talk online, uh, and pardon my congestion, um, because I was in the desert inhaling In dirt. the trenches, really, I, yes. I was in the trenches and inhaling dirt and other things. Uh, <laughs> oh, you don't and say. I'm, and, I'm, and I'm barely a human being. By the way, that is why I would not want to be that close at Coachella. Um, because I don't need the camera showing me in the crowd. I, I couldn't believe these people basically volunteered <laughs> to be, uh, <laughs> shall we say, outed. <laughs> uh, watching people peeing in a water bottle um, so they could save their place in the front of the line to see Rosalia or something mm -hmm. um, is disgusting to me. But um, Frank came out, he did his show, and this is the big conversation from the weekend, because, you know, everyone's talking about whether or not um, he 
ruins his career, whether or not he terrorized the entire Coachella audience, whether or not he's even going to be brought back for weekend two, um, whether he fulfilled his contractual obligations. Um, first off, I do love Frank Ocean. And I understand that he, as an artist, is not someone who is um, present. So right. there's like a tempestuous first, quality to him. You know, some artists yeah. are very kind of botherable and shakeable and things like that. He hates his fans, which is fine. <laughs> I love when artists hate their fans. No, it's, it's real. Actually... <laughs> it, that means they're not obsessed with relatability, which is our you know chief complaint here at Keep It. Yeah. Um, and I love his work enough that I don't mind that we don't get you know, all the accoutrement that goes with a lot of other um, megastars, you know, like he sort of just releases his shit. Sometimes it's weird. Sometimes you, you know, it's, um, you can't really get into it. Like that time he um, built a ladder on a live stream. We thought we were getting a new album, Uh, shit like that. So, I mean, going into Coachella, you sort of assume that Frank Ocean wasn't going to show up. Uh, that was the whole running joke, I feel like, leading up to the festival. Everyone kept saying, like, okay, so when's he going to pull out? Mm-hmm. You know? And then we heard it seemed like he was going to pull out, but that was just, it turns out that the original stage he had built, um, which is allegedly an ice skating rink, um, he didn't want to do it anymore. He scrapped it last minute. And so then they had to figure out how to do this show day of without the original plan and by the way um, hour of like people are already standing in the stands as he decides he doesn't want the staging concept anymore so they have to fucking melt the ice which i can't believe they couldn't generate some other way to put this together in the desert but they literally had to melt it like a giant bill (laughs) nye experiment (laughs) uh and that is where you start to get annoyed right because contempt for your fans is fine you Uh know but there's there's a point when regular contempt for your fans crosses over into disrespectful. And I feel like, here's the thing. It really seemed like he didn't want to fucking be there. So I don't know why he was there. Mm-hmm. I don't know what possessed him to go through with the deal to do Coachella. And it was very moving when he opened the show by talking about... Um, his brother who died in the car accident in 2020 and how he used to go to Coachella with his brother um, every year. And, you know, this was, this seemed like a way to honor his brother, which I thought was beautiful, you know, but then the question is, is it honoring your brother by doing a show at a festival that you both loved and basically destroying um, the entire performance before it even happens? Right. And so he ended up performing for what, like 40 minutes and doing a stripped down version yeah. of something with confused also, dancers everywhere? Because also he was an hour late. And, you know, I'm always expecting weird shit or like lateness from people. But, you know, like you can be late if you're headlining, not on Sunday. Sunday has a curfew and everyone knows that there's a curfew. He even went minutes past the midnight curfew before he actually shut it off, you know? Um, so. If you're going to do this, there's a lot of shit going on that you know you won't be able to accomplish. And I just feel like everything from being an hour late is, one, you're killing everybody's fucking highs. You know, people. he was joking about what drugs are people on 
um, when he first hit the stage. I'm like, well, not any more of them, bitch. <laughs> and, and the answer and used to be all the major ones. So uh, an, hour, an hour later, I think my mushrooms wore off. <laughs> so uh, not even not even on the correct drugs anymore. You're standing at, you know, in like a crowd of fucking people with your friends and like you've gotten a good spot and it's like as the hour creeps on like if you have to if you have to go piss girl uh-huh. uh if you want to go get another drink um you're gonna have to navigate through that fucking crowd and then somehow try and find your way back when it's pitch black it's not gonna happen you know so you're basically trapped there um and that's when you start seeing pe- pe- people peeing in water bottles and you're disgusted the, Wood- uh, the woodstock 99 takes off as it were yes um with with less of the mayhem that happened there. Yeah, right. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> mayhem being a very uh, generous word. Yes. Yeah. Um, so then we get this performance, and the performance isn't even a fucking performance. He is, first of all, just playing studio versions of his songs most of the time and bopping to them on stage. Oh, unacceptable. If I, to, if, I, if I wanted to watch you listen to your old albums at home, put that on Instagram Live. Yeah, right, right. That was basically COVID. You know, just watching people vibe to shit at home. We could have done that. I didn't have to come all the way to the desert to watch you do that. And then when he does sing, it's fucking great. Like, we got a great um, new rendition of White Ferrari. Um, We got to hear Chanel. Um, These are, like, songs that um, were moving when he did sing them, when he did seem like he was putting some effort into it. But... Otherwise, it seemed like it was thrown together. It seemed like there was no real plan. Um, And honestly, it felt disrespectful. And I know that annoying fans can be fun. And I get, you know, like the comedy and, you know, these uh, bougie, rich kids, these influencers, these TikTokers, whatever. But like that truly also is not 100% of the people who are at Coachella. Mm -hmm. You know, the narrative that like these are all annoying rich people um you know it's like oh they didn't get what they want from frank ocean you know they wanted him to dance for them you know like he works for them or something you know it's like a lot of people there are people who like saved money up to see one of their favorite fucking artists perform um who hasn't performed in years who hasn't even acknowledged um that he exists on this plane in years uh and they're like really fucking disappointed and it was sad um and and i felt bad for him and i felt bad for the audience um and i just felt pissed off um well this also uh makes me upset at coachella for not just naming the rightful headliner bjork who was also at coachella and i just want to say the footage i have seen of bjork at coachella is so unlike every other performer in that you know to use our favorite word vibes are very present at coachella you know it's like a beat centric experience it's um you know, you can you can sort of hang with your friends. Bjork was delivering, from what I could tell, stark orchestrations. It was like yes. strings galore. <laughs> it had to feel like the aliens were landing when she was getting into like the deep homogenic cuts. But at the same time, I mean, she's one of these people that, you know, at the end of our lives, we're gonna be like, okay, who are our Mozart like people? You know, and Bjork is one of them. And if you got to see that live, I'm so, so jealous of that because she and of course she was dressed like you know, she fell off the sun in her whatever, like <laughs> some outfit that has cilia on it or whatever she chose. Uh, that looked phenomenal. Listen, it it was phenomenal, but I will also, and I'm very glad that I got to experience it, but I'm also, I would prefer to go and see it at the Met. Yeah. 
<laughs> not when you're freezing sad. out there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and well, you know, it was actually pretty warm that night uh, of all the nights. But, you know, that was like, I had just seen Kali Uchis perform um, and she was fucking amazing, by the way. And then Bjork is playing and, you know, it is, it is dark. It's giving concerto. It's mm-hmm. giving, you know, um, two tickets to the show, please. You know, you're wearing your, <laughs> you're wearing a ball gown. Yes. You're wearing a tux. Uh, so it was it fun seeing that in the desert and it was, you know, it was definitely a vibe. It was not the vibe that I was on. No, it, I, so. I truly think it is like very funny what she was doing. You know, it's, it's like getting like a Yoko Ono performance art performance suddenly in the right. middle of your, you know, set. Um, so I, I watched like a half of that and then went to see this amazing band drama uh, and then came back for Frank Ocean. But that's also the beauty of Coachella, to be honest. I love a music festival because... There's so many artists playing and, you know, you can either rush to see bits of every artist that you love, or you can just sort of like, my Sunday was all about vibes. I was high and I would like wander from place to place, but I was not running to like catch someone who was playing on the other side of Coachella. That You get mm. over that after the first day, you know, right. like this was just like, I'm going to see a bit of Bjork and then I'm going to wander over here and see a bit of drama and then I'm going to come back for Frank. So that is the joy of it. And I will say other highlights were Rosalia, who's a fucking star. Yeah. Like should have been a headliner. Um, Bad Buddy was great. There's some annoying sound issues. Um, but overall, like he was a really great performer too. So I had like a really good time this year for a year that people were sort of knocking as like a year with like a bad lineup. Yeah, right, right, right. I wish I were a bigger fan of Blackpink. It's not that their music isn't bad. I just I I need something more, a little bit more like a signature moment from them. Their their music yeah. sounds like it kind of could be by anybody. Yeah, I mean, listen, they were fun. I like the beat. And <laughs> I, I like, like the beat. But yeah, I'm weirdly <laughs> a fan of Ava Max, who I think gets the same criticism. So I don't know. It's just intre- it's personal. You know what I'm gonna say about Miss Ava Max? I don't think that she has a gay person on her team. That's interesting. You know, and I think that, um, I think that, like, if you asked her her favorite drag queen, she would not have an answer. I don't see her as, like, the kind of pop star who's, like, hanging at, um, you know, like, when, like, Gaga or people would be, you see them at the Abbey or they pop up at a New York gay club, like Splash or something, and they're just partying with their gay entourage or something, Mm. right? I don't know if she has that. And I feel like that's very telling because that is, that is why she hasn't crossed over yet. She did have a weird midday listening session to her new album at uh, Rocco's in West Hollywood, but that exactly. felt, that felt no bizarre. The, there's no gay on the team. <laughs> you right. went to Lance Bass's bar right. for, a, for a daytime jam sesh? She needs to Zoom with like Rina Sawayama <laughs> and, and figure out what she has there. Uh, um, anyway, I'm less angry um viscerally today two days later but in that moment on sunday i wanted it to be the hunt i wanted the audience to be supplied with weapons and given a head start to find frank <laughs> that is what i wanted on sunday because you have to, i just, you cannot he's tomorrow open. weaving and you're in reading or ready or not <laughs> yes right uh-huh. you cannot just like overstate how insane it is to be preparing for a Coachella concert in the desert, getting your mushrooms, getting whatever drug, getting your drink, getting it all together, and then just standing there for an hour not knowing what's going to happen. And I will say, a lot of people are late 
for, you know, like fucking Kanye was fucking late and he was late, you know, like Bad Bunny was late. Black Pink started 30 minutes late because of technical difficulties. I think that Coachella should also do something better about letting people know a time frame. Uh, yeah, and as far as I know, we didn't get any video from Frank Ocean, like the Adele video being like, it's not ready. Oh, yeah. He he cut the live stream, by the way. Um, the last minute, there's going to be no live stream of it. Um, which is sort of like him very, being like, this is going to suck. Which is also very hilarious because when you do bring up the TikTokers and the influencers uh, who are at the festival, your show's going to stream anyway. Everyone I was texting right. with outside of Coachella was watching it through someone's like TikTok live feed or like seeing it streamed on someone's Instagram live. Meanwhile, it's like drone paradise. You you could be watching these <laughs> wild dolly shots all over the place of, of this. Uh, you don't need to, a random TikToker yeah. to tell you what's happening on Rosalia's stage. Yeah. Um, and lastly, of course, you know, I saw like Charlie XCX for the 900th time in the past year. I love that all her song titles are like whoosh and just like gay noises. <laughs> she did the Macarena during um, her song Welcome to My Island, her song with Caroline Polachek. And uh, it's kind of cunt. Um, can I just say about the Macarena? You absolutely know there will be a blacklist script about how that came together at some point. I, I just, I, it's like among the things AI can generate, I believe a script for the Macarena biopic is possible. So. Um, Honestly, it'll probably be from the screenwriter um, who did Air, Alex Convery. But he's had like 600 biopics on the blacklist already. So why not add the Macarena into it? Why not? Uh, Ira, who the hell is on our show today? Well, we have a guest this week, Lewis. Um, Now that I'm done ranting about Coachella, Uh uh, we can introduce our guest host, Nicole Perkins, uh, host of the Prince Mixtape a new podcast about Prince Albert. <laughs> Get in right into the Monagesque intrigue. Yes. <laughs> Does he understand how uh, fabulous his mother, Grace Kelly, was? We're about to find out. No, we're talking about Prince, Minneapolis' own. Yeah, so Nicole's going to be here to talk to us about Prince. Uh, he has so many goddamn albums. So we're going to talk about Prince Blindspots. We're going to talk about uh, Prince records that... Um, maybe some of our listeners should revisit or visit for the first time. Uh, and then we're also, because Nicole has been the host of Thirst Aid Kid, um, a fantastic podcast that I used to listen to um, before it ended, uh, we're going to talk about some of our favorite rom-coms and the hot leading men in them. Mm. Yeah. Imagine a rom-com without a hot leading man. This doesn't work. <laughs> and When Harry met Sally, no shade. Go ahead. <laughs> You think Billy Crystal ain't hot? Okay, moving on. <laughs> He's not my Mr. Saturday Night, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> you don't want to wake up in his bed on a Sunday morning and drape his Oxford <laughs> over you, walk into the kitchen and get some coffee? No, analyze that, because <laughs> uh, it's not mine. Um, we couldn't do a show talking about hot leading men without having a hot leading man True. on this episode to keep it, too. So... Lewis and I interviewed the absolutely gorgeous um, James Marsden. And when I tell you that it was very hard to ask this man questions while looking at him on Zoom, 
Some people should actually turn their cameras off. <laughs> it's just safer, right? Yeah. Uh, no, it's like one, at- one time I was at a screening where Nicole Kidman appeared afterwards, and I didn't know she was going to be there. And I was like, <laughs> why is this person looking at me? It was crazy. This is all wrong. <laughs> yeah. So we'll be right back. Nicole Perkins joining us. We have some absolutely thrilling news to share with you. It's about us, so that's why it's thrilling. Keep It has been nominated for the podcast, television, and film category at this year's Webby Awards. But here's the thing. We need your help to make sure we clinch that win. Public voting is set to close tomorrow, so we're calling on all of you to head over to webby.co slash vote. Find the podcast, television, and film category, and cast your vote for us. And let's not forget to give a huge shout out to our amazing team who works tirelessly to make every single episode worthy of a Webby. And we already have one. So what are you waiting for? Get over to wbby.co slash vote and let's make this happen. With us today, we have an incredible poet and writer who you know from the podcast, Thirst Aid Kit, and this is good for you. Her new podcast is a deep exploration into the life, music, and legacy of the artist forever known as Prince. Please welcome today's guest host, Nicole Perkins. Hi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really excited to be here. (laughs) Oh, thank you. How nice. Uh, We're thrilled to have you. Okay, uh, just broadly talking about Prince. What did you want to accomplish with this podcast? I mean, there's I mean, there's so many things to talk about with Prince, but is there sort of an overarching message about him that you felt, um, you know, sort of needs to be shared? Yeah, I mean, there's so much more to Prince than, you know, eyeliner, heels and lace. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that uh, people knew that people who are hardcore fans, people who are medium level fans and people who are just like, you know, maybe I know Purple Rain and that's it. Um, so there is a lot of information for all entries, uh, wherever you fall on on that spectrum of Prince fandom. Um, there's something there's something for you. And also, I just wanted to, like, share share some good music. Um, and Prince has uh, over 40 years of good music to, to share. Yeah, that is one of the I feel like. I don't want to say daunting things, but I guess it is daunting things about, you know, really trying to be um, or call myself a Prince fan, you know, because I I love Prince. Uh, I really have a um, Prince logo tattoo on my um, arm. Uh, I got it after he died. It's with the bat. It's within the Batman logo because that's actually my favorite Prince album. It's a good choice. Uh, Excellent choice. Yeah. Thank you. Um, But when I look at, um, Prince's discography, there are so many albums and some of them that I've truly never even heard of. Um, so, like, uh, I do not remember The Chocolate Invasion. Um, but, you know, and then there's there was the, there's an early Prince to listen to, and then, of course, for Lewis and I, uh, and you as well, you know, like, um, our particular age group, you know, like, then there was the resurgence of Prince. Um, sort of within the late nineties, um, you know, sort of early mid two thousands, you know, you had, you had musicology 3121. Um, so there's so much to take in that I feel like, can you really call yourself like 
a big Prince fan if I haven't listened to like 40% of his music, maybe even 60. I mean, I think so. I think so. I think a lot of even the most diehard from day one fans, they have a certain era that they stick with as like Mm -hmm. their, you know, top five, top 10 Prince albums or something like that. And it, it usually is wherever you first you know, it first hit you it where, you know, um, at that point in your life or whatever, like some of his later albums um, are not necessarily my favorites, but I recognize what he was trying to do. I recognize where he was experimenting with, um, you know, his musicality, or he was trying to also teach about musicality uh, in a world that was becoming increasingly digital, increasingly uh, solitary when it comes to being just a you know, one person band, as we see a lot of times nowadays. So I think a lot of his later stuff was him just trying to show how much of a community music really should be. Um, and so he was very much into uh, finding new um, new musicians to work with, new singers to work with. Uh, and he just kind of wanted to, like, he wanted people to remember, in my opinion, that music is a band and it is like, it is a group effort and not just you siloed away someplace, um, punching buttons. Um, do you have a favorite, uh, person who inspired Prince? I think of this because in talking about how he has all these albums that, you know, maybe aren't to my taste, or I I haven't even heard some of them. I would compare him to Joni Mitchell, maybe where she had a particular period that was the most popular. And then as the years went on, she really was courting basically different types of music listeners from the, from the people who, uh, you know, had springboarded her to, uh, the fame she achieved. Um, uh, Prince, Prince loved Joni Mitchell, toted, uh, uh, or touted Joni Mitchell on a track on Sign of the Times. Uh, who of his surprising influences do you sort of uh, love most? Wow. Okay. So uh, obviously, like James Brown was a big influence um, for mm-hmm. Prince. Santana, I don't think a lot of people know that Santana was a strong influence for Prince as well. Um, he really was into um, a lot of women singers. So Aretha Franklin, Shaka Khan, um, those were big influences on him as well. Like a lot of his music, I think was, he was trying to make sure somebody could sing would be able to sing like over uh, his music, even though like he was the singer himself for most of his stuff. Um, But those are some of the ones that come to the top of my mind uh, fairly easily. Uh, Shaka Khan, Aretha Franklin, Santana, James Brown. When I saw Prince at the forum, like everybody in LA did in 2011 or whenever that was, the opener was Shaka Khan. And then Whitney Houston popped out of the audience for a second. And it's just so crazy to think now, like, and now it's just Shaka's with us. I mean, it's just like, so it's so crazy, but I'm heartened to hear that he is such a fan of her. I was telling Ira, I don't know if I said this on air, Shaka Khan, one of the few people who, the talent level and the sauciness of personality are both a 10. She didn't need one to fake the other. You know, like they were both in tandem pumping at all times. And Prince is sort of like that. The personality matches the talent level. Absolutely. Absolutely. Shaka, um, I think she's just gotten to Well, she's always been, I think, kind of upfront. But, you know, once you get older in life, you're just kind of like, look, I've I've lived long enough for you to take everything I've got to say. And you're just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do really love that, like, he would... Um, sort of gather, you know, like, women that he loved in music, you know, and sort of, like, elevate them, you know, obviously Vanity Six, 
Um, you know, we have Sheila E. You know, um, I always throw out Rita Ora there too because he loved that girl and he had her on Hit and Run Phase One. <laughs> um, and so, you know, he supported Rita if no one else in the world does. <laughs> uh, but do you have other favorites of people that he sort of like championed or sort of like crafted their careers um, from the beginning? Oh, um, so this is something that we talk about in the podcast, how Prince was mm-hmm. a mentor to a lot of up and coming female singers, but sometimes it was a little tainted with his own um, personal desires, shall we say. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> uh, so like Carmen Electra, not to say that she is like a fantastic singer or anything like that. Sorry, Carmen. <laughs> um, but like she was one of the people that he kind of mentored uh right and yeah i don't i don't yeah um <laughs> <laughs> i mean of course there's, there's sharon there's jared stone's album as well right right, yeah. right. and uh, uh so kim, the batman era yeah kim basinger oh, sorry, kim, kim basinger sorry. Yeah, yeah yeah kim basinger i think she did a maybe she tried to do an album i definitely know she would like started singing around the time that they were yeah, together. it's Kim Basinger that I was thinking. I'm not sure. And so, and I, and it's if you if you track it down online and listen to it, it's not great, but the the music is good. Right, right. So he he worked with a lot of people. I don't know that I, the one my favorites are not people that he necessarily crafted from the beginning, but obviously we know Lizzo was uh, one of his proteges, um, mm-hmm. and she is doing phenomenally. Um, Janelle Monet, um, those are some of the ones that are, you know, very talented and doing their own thing. Um, you know, Prince also, he has a song with Madonna from some of her, er, one of her early. Love song uh, from Like a Prayer, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I fucking love that song. It's a good song, right? Um, gosh, it's a, it's a lot of people that he's kind of like touched. He had did a song with, um, he worked with Patti LaBelle um, several times. There's a song called uh, Yo Mister. I think it's called Yo Mister. Yo Mister, how's your daughter? It's mm. very much like a, you know, this young girl is out. She's become a sex worker. And so it's like, what did you do to put her in this position, mister? Anyway, so that's that song. Uh, he's uh, Stevie Nicks, obviously, um, staying back. Uh, she really liked, this is, I, I think this is a, a very familiar tale, but she really liked uh, Little Red Corvette. And so she wanted to use that in Stand Back. And so he came uh, to the studio and uh, performed, uh, you know, played some instruments for her for that song. So he's kind of, he's kind of been like all genres, all talent, um, even on his album, Raven to the Joy Fantastic. You've got uh, Gwen Stefani, Eve, Annie DeFranco, Cheryl Crow, like he's going to put his fingers in, oh, well, I'm not going to say that. Uh, he's going <laughs> to, like, he's, he has been throughout, like, music history, um, you know, throughout recent music history. He has touched a little bit of everybody, obviously Beyonce, of course. Um, I I see a lot of Prince's mentorship in Beyonce um, in her solo career, um, just from, like, her reticence with um interviews um the things her um archival work that she's doing for herself um that kind of stuff um he famously told her that she needed to learn how to play the piano she did you know she started playing the piano that kind of thing Mm. so um i see a lot of his influence in her work that of course is a very rewarding performance to watch prince and beyonce perform in the mid-2000s what an incredible performance 
fucking amazing Fantastic. performance. And I just love, I love the concept of Beyonce with Prince um, and him telling her, Giselle, know how to play the piano. <laughs> right right like if you are a songwriter you need to learn how you need to learn scales and you need to learn how to play the piano i am not a musician so i have no sense of the terminology but i figure that's what he told her so uh speaking of madonna i feel uh, something i always say about madonna fans is, is there's no such thing as a madonna fan whose favorite song is like a virgin and do you feel like there's a uh you know a extremely well-known prince song or whatever that you it don't in particular care for or like you sort of don't like i don't know about don't like having to talk about it but it's centralized in his career in a way that you're like eh, i'd rather not right if you tell me your favorite uh prince song is purple rain then i'm like oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> oh <laughs> so then, you like... have a radio oh so you've been to target yeah. right right <laughs> like it's a beautiful song it's a beautiful song um but i think most Prince fans, most uh, of the more serious one are going to just be like, oh, okay, whatever. Like any, almost anything off of the Purple Rain soundtrack, they're just going to be like, oh, that's cute. Um, but <laughs> what else? Uh, there was a tweet um, that uh, Jesus Nice had a long time ago that um, he was like, you know, if you ask a Prince, something about Prince fans um, will tell you that their favorite Prince album is this Japanese bootleg from 1967 or something like that, which is obviously <laughs> ridiculous. But like, that's pretty much how it how it goes when you're a, a diehard Prince fan. Um, I want to ask a bit then, you know, um, what is a Prince album, you know, that would, might be a lot of people's blind spots? Like, what do you think is a Prince album that... Um, is it one of the more, you know, esoteric ones, but maybe sort of like an album that if you've listened to Purple Rain, if you've listened to Controversy in 1999, you know, like what album or albums do you think that people should listen to that it would be like, oh, this is a vibe. This is fun. I didn't know that this album even existed and it gives me everything that I want from Prince. Um. I'm going to say Love Sexy, and that's mm. from 1988. And I mm -hmm. think part of the reason that a lot of people overlook it is because when it was released, um, it was one continuous track. I think now it's been separated in, so that each songs are, um, you know, different tracks. Um, but mm -hmm. at the time, it was just one huge track. So you could not uh, rewind or fast forward. I mean, you know, you couldn't put it, a particular song on repeat or whatever. You just had to keep rewinding mm -hmm. and fast forwarding it. Um, and so that was a little off-putting for people. But when you go back and listen to it, it's a fantastic album. It is so so good you've got um glam slam um, also just like the aesthetic of the album uh of that time period for prince was so incredible it's one of my favorite um like style aesthetics of his uh so love sexy you've got glam slam anastasia um is that alphabet street Yes, Alphabet yeah. Street, which mm. is one of my favorites just because there's like a line where he says, um, I'm going to put her in the backseat and drive her to Tennessee, which is where I'm from. So I was like, oh, my God, he knows my state exists. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a really good album. When Two Are In Love, which was... Um, I think it's on that album. Yeah, it's a, To Our Love is a very sexy uh, love song that was on that album. It's just really, really good stuff. Um, 
So I would say uh, Love Sexy, people need to check that out. Um, I would also say the Gold album Mm. from 1995. Mm. Um, And actually that was just re-released. It's being re-released now on um, vinyl and CD and all that kind of stuff. Um, It's a really good, really great album. Um, It leans more into his rock side a little bit. And I think that was also a little off-putting for a lot of people. Uh, There's a song on there called 319, which if I remember correctly, uh, is featured in the movie Showgirls. (laughs) So yes, right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know if it's still in Showgirls uh, right now because of licensing issues or whatever. Like if you look at it now, but when it first aired, it was in that Um, 319, um, I Hate You which is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite Prince songs. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a solid album. So Love Sexy and the Gold Album, I think people should revisit. Ira, do you have a favorite um, sort of hidden gem of Princess? I'm thinking of a couple right now that I really love, just in terms of uh, singles or uh, songs. Yes, when I talk about sort of like the resurgence of Prince, you know, I really mean just sort of like, people my specific age group, um, you know, I'm 36 now, uh, people sort of discovering him when we were kids, um, having known him as like, oh, this is an artist that our parents listened to. Uh, but when he came out with um, Musicology uh, in 2004, uh, I think people obviously respect this album and love it, but I really think that like, some of the songs on, on this album beyond the single musicology are some of my favorite Prince songs. Is that ever. Cinnamon Girl, uh, right? That's Cinnamon Girl. That's um, the marrying kind and the going in the transition into If I Was the Man in Your Life. It's actually maybe some of my favorite music that Prince has ever made. I was going to say, I loved uh, 3121, namely, not just the song Black Sweat, Black but Sweat, the music video. video. Guys, guys <laughs> Prince was, first of all, so hilarious it just needs to be said like he did things on camera where it's like it's like he was predicting the era of gifts it's as if like you will watch me on repeat like shooting a side eye at the camera during this one section it's it's, he's so such a funny actor which is interesting because he's obviously you know also a razzy winning actor but (laughs) that that's also something that we talk about in the podcast is uh, how funny he is and people don't really know that he was uh funny and he was um, a practical joker. He liked to pull pranks and stuff like that. Um, so someone talks about a prank where he um, put, he's like catching a bus or pretending to catch the bus and he acts like the door has closed on his hand and his <laughs> hand pops off. Um, so it's like, do stuff like that. <laughs> uh, not him being Regina Hall, scary movie. Uh, <laughs> I also love, I mean, when you talk about Prince being funny, I feel like there are always um, videos going viral of when he would have people on stage. Uh, There's obviously the famous um, Kim Kardashian video where Kim comes up on stage and she's not even dancing and he's like, get her off the stage. (laughs) Uh, But there's uh, this Instagram account that I love called Velvet Coke, um, which recently shared a video. um, Feels like it's the 80s um, or like early early 90s um, of this woman dancing on stage um that he invited up but then she's like following him over to the piano and he's like stepping up on the piano and she's trying to crawl up on the piano at him and he's like and he just goes 
security. <laughs> He's like, you need to be over there. <laughs> and so like, when, uh, he was on The View and uh, Sherry Shepard got a little too, she got a little too close. And she said something to him, um, basically like, I love you. She was, she was having a fangirl moment and he was just like, oh, I'm out. And he walked off. <laughs> just, did not come back. <laughs> Sherry Shepard be unprofessional on TV. I'm sorry. I like, this is off topic, but she took Wendy's show and the results are wild. <laughs> she is friends with Cheryl Lee Ralph. Um, but she um, was talking about how hot Cheryl Lee Ralph's son is. Uh, and then that, the fact that he does like yoga in the park um, in LA, you know, to teach like black men um, how to, you know, do yoga and how their uh, mental health. And she started sort of simulating, like, doing, like, downward dog and, like, humping the floor. Like, she was humping this man that she's known since he was a child. And I'm like, I can see why Prince was like, back up <laughs> off me. Sis. Yes, yes. She got a little, a little, um, a little thirsty, no pun intended, but it was, it was a lot. <laughs> Even at the end of his uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, induction performance when he just throws the guitar up in the air, I mean, like, it's so nutty. You know, I mean, you have to laugh. And by the way, he, he then walks off and everybody else in the performance is simply left on stage. It's so funny. You know? Yeah, he was, yeah. Yeah, he was going to leave his mark on that one way or another. Yeah. Another one of my favorite things, too, is um, my friend Kelly Carter, uh, journalist, um, talked about how she, whenever he would invite people to his home, like journalists and things, you know, like give interviews or stuff or talk to them, like, There'd be no recording or even writing down what he said. And I'm like, that is just so fantastic to me. Yeah, I don't know that I would have remembered anything other than like what he smelled <laughs> I like if I, if I had ever been invited. <laughs> You're just remembering vibes. Right, right. <laughs> Do we have any sense of how much of his insane vault might could be released over the next blank and blank years? Are you optimistic we'll be hearing a lot of this stuff ever or no? I don't think so because I, I, I mean, who knows what his estate will, will do, of course. Um, I don't think that there is a way to release everything that is in that vault um, within my lifetime. Like, it, because he was just constantly working, you know, constantly working. Like he, like every single day, that he could. Um, and because he knew, he learned how to record by himself, um, he built, he was one of the few, first few people to have his own studio in his, you know, in his own residence. So he would just like go record stuff and lay it, lay it down or put it away or something like that. Um, there are a lot of stories of him recording something, playing it one time and then erasing it, uh, that kind of thing. So I don't, I don't think we'll ever get all of what was all of what is in his vault. Um, and a lot of it is just, um, from my understanding, a lot of it is, you know, repetitious or whatever, like demos and things like that. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think we're going to get, uh, I don't think we have any idea of how much is in there or how much has, um, and how much has been lost period, just in his own, um, artist temperament you know he just kind of deleted a lot of stuff on the show someone says um that he played a song for her and then deleted it and she's just like i still i'm haunted by that song because it was so fantastic and i wish the world could hear it but he because it was a very personal song for him it was like a romantic uh -huh. breakup song and i was just like i i want that song i want there has to be 
a copy someplace, but she was like, nope, he deleted it. That is also a bit of like the cruelty of art, I want to say. You know, like you're this fan, you're not just like someone um strumming a guitar for like your girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, like in the in a dorm, like, oh, I wrote the song for you. Like you're fucking friends. And you're like, here's this beautiful, heartbreaking song you played for someone. And then you're like, okay, now I'm gonna delete it. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> Uh, it, it just uh, breaks my heart. <laughs> I'm sure the um, vault actually probably just has other lost albums that he made for um, women that he dated. And if so, I hope there isn't a Nanda Lewis album um, somewhere <laughs> in that vault. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. A fine talk show host. I remember the era vividly. When we're back, Lewis and I sit down with James Marston to discuss his new TV series, Jury Duty. Our next guest is your favorite part in any movie, show, franchise, musical. He's Cyclops. He's Corny Collins. He's Teddy Flood. He's Sonic's friend. And in the new show, Jury Duty, he's taken on the very demanding and sought-after role of James Marsden. So please welcome to Keep It, James Marsden. How's it going, guys? Good. Wow, I like that intro. Your favorite part of every movie or TV show you ever watch? I mean, like, listen, you really are. Even the ones I'm, I'm not in. Terrific. <laughs> yeah, listen, I watch, I do watch a lot of movie musicals and wish that you were in them. You can't really um, overestimate how great the role of Corny Collins is. Um, so thank you for that. Well, I appreciate that. That was probably the most fun I ever had on a movie set before. It was, it was a just a full on party and it made me realize how badly i enjoy doing that how badly i want to get on stage and do that eventually um but yeah thank you very very kind of you <clears throat> it's um, aging well the uh, hairspray and the corny collins yeah um jury duty is a staggering show uh i That's a good way to put it <laughs> if if people haven't seen it it's a show where one guy who doesn't know what's going on is for real a part of jury duty and everyone around him truman show style is cast and this man named Ronald is so, first of all, smiley, but so clearly gullible that you just know <laughs> you're about to be taken on a huge adventure with this guy. And James Marsden uh, plays himself and uh, is touting his own accomplishments in, shall we say, a, an ostentatious way throughout the show. How, how long did it take you to be convinced to do this show? Because I've not seen anything like it. So did you need like a particular producer to tell you, well... Don't worry, it's all under control, and this guy's not violent or whatever you need to be assured of to be a part of this project. It was, uh, I probably put the most thought into signing up to this project than I do for anything I ever do, really, because <clears throat> uh, mainly because it's, it is so, uh, it's such uncharted territory, not only for me, but for, um, I couldn't think of any sort of comp for this type of show. It's just very different in its design. Um, 
I, I was approached by David Bernad, a friend of mine who I've worked with a few times before, produced The White Lotus, and and uh, and he, him alongside Lee Eisenberg and Gene Stavisky, the creators of The Office, who I, I love and respect, and they came to me with this idea of a sort of courtroom comedy, uh, all taking place during the course of jury duty, people serving on jury duty, where you have one celebrity playing themselves, a, a sort of heightened, exaggerated version of myself, I, I'll... I'll careful to point out <laughs> make sure that i point that out <laughs> i believe you <laughs> uh and then a bunch of uh improv artists like young you know relatively unknown improvisational actors and one person who doesn't know that the entire thing is fake and scripted not scripted from a dialogue perspective there's no scripted dialogue but you know there was situational comedy there were beats that were written into seven or eight scripts and i got excited about because I just love that style of comedy. I'm a big Christopher Guest fan. Um, you know, The Office, Larry David, Larry Sanders show. And so I it, that appealed to me <clears throat> to get in a room and just sort of mess around with these uh, really gifted improvisational artists. And the scripts were laugh out loud funny and crazy. And I got to make fun of myself and, and sort of send up the entitled Hollywood celebrity uh, in a very <laughs> fun way in this. The one element I wasn't prepared for was the wild card, which was this man who is here thinking that he's serving jury duty. And there's a, you know, a low budget documentary film crew following us around creating a documentary on, you know, a fake, right? He thinks it's a real documentary, but that's sort of one of our ruses that we do. Um, and I just, it didn't occur to me how it, I got excited about doing all the improv stuff, but I'm also... I'm realizing the first couple of days with this guy, like, he, you know, we're keeping him in the dark for three weeks of his life. And it's just a long period of time to be messing with somebody. Now it was important to me that, and I, and I voiced this several times throughout to the producers and the showrunners that, that I'm not doing anything to humiliate him or make fun of him. We're just going to surround him with a lot of foolishness, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of like characters that are behaving strangely and in occurrences that, <laughs> that are sort of out of the ordinary and that's where the comedy comes from but boy it was a it was a tricky one because there were certain beats that were that were meant to be so much more ridiculous that we couldn't push because one you got to get him to the finish line right we have to get to the end of the three weeks uh where we you know we, we reach a verdict <clears throat> and you can't you know you gotta gotta keep him believing that the whole thing is real um so it was this delicate dance for for a couple of weeks of um and i of course is playing this really like you said, ostentatious, self-absorbed, egocentric, you know, Hollywood jerk. Uh, but I had to kind of keep him close to me as well. So you're you're constantly, I've never done anything like it in my life. It sounded like a challenge. It sounded like something that was original in a time where everything's just being duplicated and reimagined and remade. And so I kind of dove in and was crossed my fingers. And, you know, by design, it's a little bit of a, an experiment. Um, but at the end of it, they told me, or sorry, at the beginning, they said, we're, this isn't a prank show. We're creating a hero's journey for somebody so that hopefully by the end of the three weeks, he's someone of character that we're celebrating. He's somebody who became the leader who united all of us. And that's exactly what happened. So I mean, uh, a collective sigh of relief is, <laughs> is heard around the room. He's so genuine too, yes. you know, and I think it's because, you know, I think maybe AV Club pointed this out. Like, it's not like, you know the show Joe Schmo, which we remember from the 2000s, which was about right. being mean to a person you're pranking. Um, it really lets, I feel like it really lives on the fact that he is such a sweet and genuine person. I mean, I feel like right. I was immediately pulled in 
uh, when you meet him the first day, but then the next day he comes back because he finds out you're James Marsden. Um, he's like, I want Sonic. You know, <laughs> right. he, he yeah. watched it uh, because he met you and he wanted to talk to you about it. Uh, and I think just finding someone like that is so lovely. Yeah. And just like yeah. lightning was, in a bottle. Well, he, he, you know, he needed to be, the, whoever the person was, needed to be someone who was open to an adventure, right? The, um, and I think he voiced that in a few early interviews. He said, I'm at a stage in my life where I'm just sort of open to new adventures and 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 some discovery and had a real curiosity about, um, you know, whatever was next in his life. And it was also really vital that it was someone that we cheer for at the end, right? This guy is supposed to be our hero and bring us all together. And we're just this kind of crazy group of weirdos. And, uh, <laughs> and he's this sort of moral you know, core of the center of it. And he gets to have fun too, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you just don't know what he's, I don't know anything about him. I didn't know anything about him. We were, all of us were just a bundle of nerves the first day when he came in it was all orchestrated. I sit here, this lady comes up and asks for a photo. I hand the photo to the camera to him to take the photo. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. You just don't know, right? Like if he, if we're really trying to get him to turn right, but he wants to turn left, we got to turn left and you got to pivot. I didn't know if he was going to know who the hell I was. I didn't know if he was going to know anything I've ever done. And someone, you know, took the photo and he said, I think I, I, I recognize you. I didn't know what from. And then I somehow bring up Sonic because I'm an entitled actor. I wanted to just talk about myself. <laughs> and he said, Sonic, oh, I, you know, I, oh, I, I didn't see that. I heard it wasn't a good movie. <laughs> Which, to me, it was like, it was perfect because, you know, it just, that's, you just, you, and then I had to respond accordingly in character. Um, but that was where a lot of the comedy came from is not knowing what he was ever going to say or how he was going to react. <clears throat> no one knew what was going to make him feel uncomfortable. No one knew what was going to make him laugh, what he's going to respond to. And so it was this, it was this adventure where we had to kind of be malleable and nimble and kind of shift along the way as, as we learned more about him. Uh, but that was also part of the fun of it. And we, and we stayed very protective of him throughout. He didn't know, but you know, like you said, it's the Truman Show, but in jury duty. And at the end of it, he's realizing that for three weeks, everyone he surrounded himself with were all actors. Um, and that's going to have a big impact on you if it's not a positive one, you know? So we we made sure that at the end of it, we were celebrating his spirit, his pure heartedness, and, and hopefully that the journey along the way was fun. Did you have uh, favorite things you came up with uh, to lampoon yourself as the weeks went by i mean i won't spoil anything but in the first episode you just pop out of nowhere with ellie mcbeal season five and i just it's a full <laughs> scream <laughs> you should well, just be was, saying that, that in general funny. i hope that becomes your actual catchphrase <laughs> yeah yeah i always like i like to start with the turkeys first and then go up right I, you can't just always lead with the, with the big hits but um not that ellie mcbeal was a, a, a bad show i think the last season <laughs> we sort of closed it out yeah, I, uh, I the, the, the joke there was that I was trying to get this curmudgeonly old judge to notice me who didn't yeah. notice me in the courtroom. I, I'm, you know, ripping through my credits, trying to get out of jury duty. And he's like, ah, you know, if John Ratzenberger can sit in my courtroom, then you can sit in my courtroom. <laughs> and of course, I'm, you know, trying to think of what the hell he'd ever seen me in. So I throw the Alling McBeal out, you know, hoping that that was his some some generational thing he would have got. But yeah, I think I mean it, all of it was fun. I mean, the idea of 
playing this character who's pretending to be, you know, uh, affable and, and, um, but clearly egocentric, um, jerk, uh, who isn't interested in any conversation that doesn't involve him, um, whether he's aware of it or not, you know, it's like he's holding this confidential script and, but, you know, I can't tell you about it, but I really <laughs> want you to ask about it. And no one gives, but no one cares. Right? No one in the courtroom knows who I am or cares. But I can, and it bothers me because it's like, this is usually, you know, when you go to the jury duty, you're like, that's the great equalizer, right? There's no hierarchy of like, oh, celebrity and this, that, like everyone's there doing the same civic duty. And it's like standing in line at the DMV. So I liked the idea of playing this guy who's used to be being coddled and, you know, maybe has a posse or what, you know, and now he's here with nobody, nobody gives a crap who he is. And and kind of watching him embarrass himself. I just think to me, playing somebody like a Hollywood entitled, spoiled, um, you know, celebrity comes with this opportunity to play the hot shot. And then throughout the course of the show, um, you watch him kind of fall on his face and embarrass himself. Right. <laughs> it's just, and he just becomes a sort of, you know, it's, it's my way of lampooning myself or lampooning kind of, you know, entitled Hollywood. Um, but it was all, it was just kind of all of that. Like I get into character and I, I've never done method stuff, but I decide to, while I'm on jury duty, get into the method thing a bit to prepare for this role. <laughs> and he's so, and, and I mean, the idea that this guy thinks that none of this is as important as me booking this role in this movie is just kind of says, says enough about the fun of playing yourself, but playing this really exaggerated heightened version of yourself i mean i just I, I like i like i liked the idea of sending sending up that sort of that character that celebrity in, in this show anyway uh I, i'll give you more examples but um i don't want to spoil it that's all good it seems like you would even be you know like uniquely um prepared for like a role like this where you're thinking on your feet because when i think about your career um You've done so many different things. I mean, you know, I feel like we were first uh, introduced to you through, like, a lot of great teen movies. Well, at least great to me. I love disturbing behavior. Uh, I remember going to the theaters to see Gossip. Uh, (laughs) uh, But then, you know, you also have the X-Men franchise, but then you've also got like a slew of like rom-coms, you know, uh, and yeah. then, like an enchanted, I mean, out of all of those genres and I see people clamoring for you to be in more rom-coms online all the time. Like which one excites you the most out of all the genres that you've done? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I definitely, you know, I definitely love comedy. <clears throat> um, I feel like the rom-com is, is, is like extinct at this point. I don't know that they're even making them anymore. They're trying, but I feel like there's an appetite for those types of movies now, especially what we've all been with been through the last couple of, of years. It's some nice sort of light, fun fare would be um, really welcome. So I do, I enjoyed 27 Dresses. That was sort of, um, we, we, we kind of hit it with that one. And it was one of those that, you know, now I still get people stopping me on the streets and talking about it and people still rewatching it and you feel very proud of that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, God, disturbing behavior. I still can't believe it. <laughs> That's a <laughs> deep one, deep one. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I love them all. I'm, what I'm proud of most of what I've accomplished and hopefully continue to is the, the being given the opportunity to, to not 
you know, to, 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 to jump around from genre to genre, to play these different characters where you're not just the guy who's in a romantic, you know, that you cast in romantic comedies, but you're also the guy who plays John F. Kennedy in The Butler or, or, or as Cyclops in The X-Men or, you know, so that's, that's the thing I'm most proud of, of what I've been able to achieve. And it came from just trying to get whatever work comes your way. And, you know, so early on, people are saying, why'd you do that job? And so I did it because they gave the job to me <laughs> and I made the best and I made the best of it. Uh, but then it became the, the pattern became like, oh, I was the guy who was able to sort of jump around quite a bit. And and it and it and it kind of catered to my skill set to do that. I was like I was very in a self-deprecating way. I would always say I'm the like, you know, the guy who's not great at anything but good at a lot of things <laughs> right? so I was sort of swiss army knife but um but i do love comedy um it gets me excited to go to work in the morning you know if you know you're doing a drama i love the challenges of that i just did this movie with michael keaton and, and al pacino and um it was like you know i really had to some heavy lifting to do like emotionally and for the character and and as as much as i love that and the challenge of that you know you definitely it's hard to hang that up at the end of the day when you go home, right? You're just like, kind of just emotionally worn out. And with comedy, it's like I, I, on this show, jury duty, I would just, I would go home and say, okay, what are we doing tomorrow? What beats are we doing tomorrow? And I would just write down a whole list of things that maybe I could say to make fun of myself, depending on how he would react. So I, I guess I just get, comedy gets me, it's, it's one of the reasons I got into the business. Like I used to love SNL. My goal when I was in high school, I was like, I want to be, a regular on SNL. I want to be one of the the, the, the cast. And um, I ended up going to LA because I had a better opportunity there than I did in New York. Uh, but otherwise I would have come to New York and pursued that because I always felt like more of a character actor than your sort of leading man guy. Though I will say, I mean, you get, I'll, I'll call it this, I don't know about second best version of that, but a version of that, which is you provided a viable boyfriend for Liz Lemon, one of the most unstable and horrifying characters in television history. How? Yeah. I mean, like, I, I just, as the years go on, I just don't think anything has matched 30 Rock. I just, whatever it did, the whiz bang of it, how smart it was about TV and like uh, uh, crazy uh, James Marsden in jury duty like characters uh, yeah. on that show. Mm. Um, what was it like? Uh, providing a foil and a boyfriend for Liz Lemon. Well, I was, I was nervous at first, to be honest, because I had the same reverence for the show as you did. Right. I thought that it was probably the smartest, most sharply written comedy in, in, in years. I think it was, I mean, the writing on that show is to me, the real star of the show. I mean, obviously everyone's great on it, but it's, it's, it's so crafted and so specific and so meta. And it just, I was like, where do I fit in in this world? <laughs> oh, the sort of dopey, sweet, puppy-eyed boyfriend named Chris Cross, who just, you know, is, you know, gaga in love with her. Um, that'll work. But like, you're, I was looking back, I was like, okay, who's been here? There's John Hamm and Matt Damon and all these people. I'm like, boy, um, I got to bring it. And I remember thinking the first this not the first season the first season i was on i forget it was like season five or six i think um i was unaware uh if it, of, of whether or not it was working i was like is this not, feels good feels fun but um i have no idea and then you watch the episodes like oh wow it really does work 
but to the degree where I was like, okay, well, that was fun. I kind of went in and did a bit on 30 rock and, and what's next. And then Robert Carlock called me and he said, Hey, want to see if you want to come back for another season. And I was like, what, really? I would, I did not anticipate that phone call. I thought that that was like, Oh, it was sort of mildly amusing. And maybe it worked. He goes, no, are you kidding? Like we want her to end up with you. Like marriage? Yeah, like marriage. You have a whole wedding and everything. I'm like, <laughs> okay, cool. So that felt good. It was like, you know, it was a, it was a great experience. I loved working with Tina and just, we just had a, just an easy, fun rapport of these kind of two, I don't know, they both had their sort of brand of weird as well, right? Just kind of yeah. odd. Um, and that's where, and that's how it worked because there was these two oddballs who fell in love with each other. Yeah, very proud of that. I just, I thought that was the, just the smartest i mean uh, if you're lucky you just work with the best minds in the business you just work with the best directors in the business and um if you're lucky enough to do that you'll have a longer career and and um i'm very very lucky and grateful to have been a part of that crazy crazy and um uh, brilliant show yeah, you can't rank the guest stars in that show everybody is so oh. uh, th th it's like they they mold everybody into being like amazing i can't think of one person yeah. who was deficient you know yeah no it, they, they always make sure it works always make sure it works and um it was uh it was my i would come into new york you know w once every six weeks come in you know go to silver cup studios out there shoot an episode go back and you know it was i was kind of in and out recurring but it was such a great thing to pop in and be in the hands of those brilliant writers um and then just to get there and play with teen on set was just a dream. You know, in doing this character for jury duty, obviously, you know, you're coming up with moments yourself to make fun of your past roles or like bring up things that you think may jog people's memories. Um, was this fun for you to, you know, sort of go back and like, are you a person who like offhand, you're like, you remember everything you've ever done? Or were you like God, having no. a moment where you were like, let me look at my Wikipedia and remember that I did, you know, sugar and spice in 2001 and bring that up. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I do, and I don't say this arrogantly, I do forget certain projects that I was in. Um, not because I've done so much, but because I just, you know, as I, you just like, you do, a pro, you do, you work on something and then you, you, you do your best, you have a good time, you move on to what's next. And But I feel like I was maybe a little more prepared to talk about previous projects because i wouldn't I, I i needed to be prepared for what he might recognize me from so i had to go back and refresh my memory um uh but uh but yeah and i think the character that i'm playing the the very self-involved james marsden would you know would be able to recite everything right it's like basically walking around with a t-shirt <laughs> imdb page on was there something that you like um re-looked at from like your past roles where you were like Oh, maybe you had forgotten about it or like you hadn't thought about it in a while, but was like a great experience that you sort of wish was a film or project that people remembered more. I mean, it's funny that the you couldn't make this movie nowadays because it's so, I would say, offensive in some ways. But the movie that he brings up in the show that Ronald brings up is a movie called Sex Drive. Yes. And, you know, raunchy, raunchy comedy. And it was when I when I got the role i was like i don't do i really need to be in a coming of age comedy but that maybe no one's ever gonna see and i thought 
this something about the character like i grew up with someone in in oklahoma in high school that was so similar to what this character was i was like i'm just gonna do whatever the hell i want because no one's gonna see this movie and i'm gonna have fun doing it and turns out that's the recipe for a lot of times for success (laughs) because (laughs) i mean not the movie didn't really do anything but for me it was that's what will ferrell saw me in and he was like you're so funny in that would you want to come be an anchorman too and and it was the movie that um that Ronald brings up, I forget which episode it is, but he brings it up. It's like, you were in one of my favorite movies of all time, Sex Drive. I was like, wow. <laughs> uh, don't tell anybody about that movie because that'll probably get me canceled nowadays. Um, <laughs> really um, great soundtrack, though. You've got Fall Out Boy, MGMT. That's like yeah, a good 2009 time capsule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's some Sonic Youth in there as well. I'm not sure, but... Uh, yeah, it was a great... I mean, it was just a fun... I was just like a real a real another real jerk in that one but um but there's something fun about playing that character where you get to if you, as long as you get to kind of you know be made fun of while you're doing it uh so that's one that he came in and i was not ready for and he said oh he brought his dvd and like will you sign this and so we me and the writers then once he came in knowing that movie we had this idea we, it's not in the show but we had this idea to find a life-size cardboard cutout of me in character <laughs> as as rex from sex drive and that when jury duty was over i was going to give him this as a gift <laughs> <laughs> he would have fucking loved it yeah, yeah he would have uh, for, for, for sure um and then i had this other idea to like because he's the car i drive in the movie is called the judge this orange gto 1960s gto called the judge and i was gonna when we revealed it to him i was gonna see if we could we, we didn't have time to do it but I'm gonna rent. See if we could rent one, and I pick him up and take him for a drive in it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was so funny that that's the movie he brought up. I mean, you just saying now, Sugar and Spice. I'm like, oh Jesus, I was in that, right? God. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's. I feel I'm very proud to have uh, been a part of so many projects. But yeah, you do. You do start to forget. I'm trying to think of something else. I wish somebody would have seen more of. Oh, there's a movie I did with David Bernad, who produced this. Um, called the D Train with Jack Black. That, I uh, think that I, movie is so I, good, I and you are so good in it. I love Catherine Hahn in it oh, too, and Jack Black. Yeah, yeah great Catherine movie. Hahn, Jack yeah. Black. Very weird. Kind of, yeah, very. And that's what I like about it. It's not cookie cutter buddy buddy comedy, right? Mm-hmm. You Mike think White it's gonna too. Yeah. Mike White. You think it's gonna be that, and then it just, you know. It uh, it takes a turn. <laughs> Look at me, like uh, I'm not spoiling. I don't want to spoil it for people, as if someone's <laughs> going to go watch it this weekend. <laughs> uh, but uh, that just any, anything that just tries to subvert the obvious and and not just go down the easily you know, w- you know well traveled roads. Like I, I just think any, anything is just left of center, a bit odd and off. I just I've always gravitated towards that kind of material, and, and the D train is is one of those. I think they probably people probably saw the poster. It was like what's this buddy comedy with, with Jack Black and James Marsden. And, and um, yeah, I, I, if you watch the movie and it's certainly not that, um, you know, it, it's a sort of darker, funny, dark, darker version of that. So that's, that's one that I'm proud of that uh, I, I wish more people would have seen, but yeah. Unexpected queer content in that movie too. I just want to say for people who haven't uh, seen it, yeah, go and check right. it out. <laughs> I know, right? It's it's right. We can say spoilers on that now because yeah, it's uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's um, and done in a very kind of heartbreaking but also funny way. I, I'm trying to figure the right 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 way to describe it, but um, 
yeah, that's that's Mike White. That's um, that's kind of his his brilliance. There is like, how do you take something that's can also can be kind of dark, and, <laughs> and you find yourself laughing at it as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, that one's uh, that's another one I'm really proud of. Well, thank you so much for being here. I mean, of course, honestly, like I said, we we love you in so many things, but you know, we need another rom com, yeah. and we do, and I need sure. to find Mark Shaman and um, just make him write a hairspray sequel that's just about Corny, the Corey Collins show. You know, Mark and I after was it, I think this was even before we did hairspray. Uh, I got approached by. Um, um clive davis to do an album uh like of like standards like michael buble and i was going to meet him in new york and i called mark i went would you come with me to this meeting i don't you know like play the piano and i'm sing for him or whatever but we were flirting with the idea of doing an album for a while but uh, i'd rather just do a, a full-on full-blown musical again i don't think anybody ever gets sick of him yeah and he's um, so great at though i mean i i fucking love some like it hot um, I just saw yeah, that recently. It's so good. It's it's he's he's so great and so, such a talent. I knew about him from when I was in college, listening to Harry Harry Connick on, you know, when Harry Met Sally soundtrack, and I was like, who who's and the early Connick records. I was like, who is doing these orchestrations? And it's like Nelson Riddle. I was like, and then I figured out it was Mark Shaman, and then started seeing like, oh my god, he did the South Park movie and like this and that. And like, okay, I started hearing his sound and his orchestrations, his big band, you know, horns and drums, and so I just I became a fan very very early on with Mark, and then serendipitously we ended up working together on Hairspray, not because I knew him, but because it just worked out that way. And uh, um, such a crazy gifted gifted human being, and um, lucky to be a. Uh, have <laughs> some really, really great memories of even just his apartment here in New York, just going up with a bunch of people and singing. And he's the best. He's the best. And um love to do something with him again. All right. When we're back, Nicole Perkins rejoins Lewis and I to discuss our favorite underrated rom coms. Okay, I don't even really like the phrase guilty pleasure in the first place, so I'm ignoring that. Um, these are guilty pleasure rom-coms. But, Nicole, you hosted Thirst Aid Kit uh, with them. I absolutely love that show. And, um, you know, you were always talking about hot men on that show. And that leads me to rom-coms. Uh, and, you know, we just had um, James Marsden on this episode, so I wanted to know what you and Lewis, some of your favorite, um, maybe underrated romantic comedies are. Okay, so I'm going to say this one. I also do not believe in guilty pleasures. Uh, I think you should be loud and proud with whatever it is that makes you happy for that hour and 30 minutes or whatever. Um, I'm going to say this one. Okay, just bear with me. Okay. (laughs) It's this movie called She's Out of My League, and it came out in 2010. Yeah! James Baruco is in that? Yes, Yes. I remember it well. Yes! Yes. (laughs) I think he is so cute. (laughs) (laughs) And I know, like, I have a thing for really skinny men. Like, I like a little 
cigarette looking dude. I, I call him a French, I call him a French fry of a man. Um, like I, that's my thing. Um, so I know a lot of people when I say, you know, someone like Jay, they're just like, what are you talking about? He looks like an adolescent. Well, first of all, he does not. Okay. Like he looks like a grown man. Um, he's just slim, you know, I, it's okay. Um, but I think he's so cute. He has really pretty eyes. And the movie is about, uh, he plays this character that's a TSA agent and he falls for Alice mm-hmm. Eve, who is like a party planner or something like that. Like she does, um, uh, event she's like an event planner or something like that um and you know she comes from uh, a wealthy family i think there's i think the movie is set if i remember correctly either in pittsburgh or philadelphia i think it's pittsburgh uh and his family is very you know working class and there's just a lot like his friends are bums you know it's very much that whole like bromance judd apatow era of like yeah. rom-coms and stuff right um and like there's a there's a scene where he's trying to like shave his pubic hair. It's just it's disgusting and it's, it's so much. Um, but it's just a cute little movie that is, you know, that basic lesson of don't count yourself out. You never know, you know, just because you don't have all of these things, it doesn't mean that you're not a good person, that someone won't fall in love with you, kind of thing. It's just a really sweet, silly, ridiculous movie. Mm, I loved jay on the series undeclared on fox and so i feel like i was obsessed with his just like face then and when she thought of my league came out that movie is like 2010 um which is a period when i was um i was already living here in new york um but i was in grad school then and it was definitely a time where on the weekend much like high school in college like whatever fucking movie came out I would probably go and see it that weekend. Like, it doesn't matter the quality of it. You see it and you see the trailer and you're like, this looks fun enough. I'll go see it. Right. So uh, definitely saw She's Out of My League in theaters. And I love that because he's a TSA worker, it makes the ending um, with the racing to the airplane um, funnier. Yes. Yes. They do a lot of cute little twists on, you know, rom-com tropes in the movies. I, I, I love it. It's one of my favorites. I hope those How to Train Your Dragon checks are fat. I hope it really is banking. Those movies are cute, actually. Uh, my, uh, if, if I, I don't know about underrated, but I will say I think this satisfies the prompt, which is if the movie's on, I will watch it till the end. So there must be some level of affection occurring there. And I have a personal connection to this movie because the beginning of it was filmed in my hometown when I was in middle school. And... So I literally got to see the high school I would soon be in because it's featured at the beginning of the movie, Save the Last Dance. Uh, mm. Let me say something about this movie. First of all, I did not realize what a hit it was. This movie cost like $13 million and made $130 million. I don't think of it as like, uh, you know, sort of a towering entry in this genre in any way. But there's just something about, one, a surly female lead. It's just, we, mm-hmm. you don't get a lot of them. You know, like, usually if a woman's leading a movie, her whole thing is, I'm full of charisma. And Julia Stiles' thing is, I am avidly avoiding having charisma. You know, I am <laughs> arguably, like, begrudgingly in this film. Uh, uh, so there's a, just something I really like about that. But also, like, this woman having to learn uh, dancing, like, to, she, she's a ballerina, and then she wants to, uh, you know, learn hip-hop. There is something actually 
vulnerable making about that performance. Like you actually are kind of gripping the table. Like, am I watching something I shouldn't be watching? This feels almost too personal <laughs> that somebody would be putting this on film. But for that reason, it's pretty good. You know, it like it gives you um, it, it exposes a side of a personality that I don't think you would otherwise see in a rom-com. Uh, yeah, I just find it to be a really pleasant movie. And uh, yeah, it, one of the few that's been filmed in Lamont, Illinois. Straight Talk with Dolly Parton, another entry. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the one with Carrie Washington? And then she's yes. like a teen mom? Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. And, yeah, and famously the line, what's she doing? Two-step? <laughs> <laughs> and she was. So just journalistically <laughs> accurate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another one of my favorite, I love the interracial comedies so much because that has that scene where they're like, canoodling on the train in Chicago uh, and this older white woman is like looking at them. Um, just a funny scene. Yeah. Also, I think a good uh, area to look for when you're thinking of like underrated rom-coms or whatever is the best kiss MTV movie award. You know, like <laughs> rarely does a good movie end up in that category, but it does have a couple of moments that should be celebrated. Okay, well, don't attack Spider-Man too like that. <laughs> or the, I cannot get over it. One of the craziest nominations in that category is the Jeremy Irons Lolita. Like, A Kiss with Dominique Swain, a, a, a <laughs> teen. Gross, MTV. I feel like the best movie to ever win um, Best Kiss is um, Cruel Intentions. They were like, get, here you know, is the kiss. Yeah, you got Selma Blair, you got Sarah Michelle Gellar. They're like, we are the entire summer that that movie came out. Like every everyone had women tonguing each other down. No, also like it was it's SNL, like it was commercials. Yeah, no, the lips interact in that scene like mealworms in a petri dish. Just whoa, like moving, <laughs> and you could you could feel the sticky and the temperature in the kiss. Unusually yeah. immersive. Tragically, that film does not hold up. As well as I agree. Should. No, you obviously you would just go watch Dangerous Liaisons. Be a human being. You're an adult. You know, I, I had some friends over uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, and they're all millennials. And I, for whatever reason, I can't remember why, but I put on Dangerous Liaisons, and I was like, mm. "This is what Cruel Intentions." This was the remake, <laughs> and they were just this like, "What?" <laughs> and I had to like say, "Okay, now this is." Um, Buffy's character like I was trying to like <laughs> draw the parallel so they could understand it and they were riveted and I was like okay you have to go like obviously you know they were over and we were talking over so much of it but I was like you have to go home now and watch this from the beginning to the end because they were looking at baby Keanu they oh, yeah. were you know they seen on uh, Michelle Pfeiffer in there and they were just like their mouths were dropped uh yeah baby was, Uma was, yeah yes. it's a great movie I mean look so dangerous liaisons is fucking fantastic and always do for a revival and um oh it's, it's an amazing as Sarah Michelle Gellar is in Cruel Intentions and Ryan Felipe is so sexy in it and um Reese Witherspoon is just like so sweet uh and then of course you have um Swoozy Kurtz who is it. also in Dangerous Liaisons yes yes um that is um that is just a great fucking cast but it doesn't all really gel together but I'm glad that Cruel Intentions was brought up because my film has Swoozy Kurtz in it as well. Oh, wow. This is my episode. All right. Let's, yeah. let's... My underrated rom-com, and um, this is is not a surprising box office hit. The budget was 
22 million and the box office was 19.9 million we so love to see it, it. Was, exactly what i want to look at <laughs> on a wikipedia definitely a flop tell me if you know this movie from the cast kirsten dutz ben foster cisco oh god is this um it's not uh crazy beautiful what else is, what could it be no that although that is a lovely Kristen Dunn's movie this is get over it i have never First, heard of that love titles like that by the way oh wow um so let me tell you something about get over it Nicole. get over it is loosely based on a midsummer night's dream and so of course the students in the high school in the movie are putting on a midsummer night's dream okay because you have to, you, you can't just have it be uh, based on Midsummer Night's Dream. You have to really hone in on the fact that this is based on Shakespeare. Because this is 2001, and this is the era of, oh, you know, and um, right. adapting every Shakespeare thing into a teen movie. Um, ben Foster is trying to win back his ex-girlfriend, um, who is Kirsten Dunst and... He joins the school play um, that she's in with her new boyfriend. So he joins Midsummer Night's Dream so that he can win her back. Uh, also has Zoe Saldana, Mila Kunis. Shane West plays the other love interest. Carmen Electra is in this movie. This starts out um, with him being dumped. Uh, he's being left, um, you know, like a. Um, cardboard box um with all his stuff in it uh and he's leaving her house and the movie kicks off with vitamin c then appearing because you know it's 2001 yeah i'm gonna say it's Um, exactly one year yes right yeah (laughs) the singer vitamin c appears and she and everyone else in the town starts appearing behind him singing captain and tenille's love will keep us together following him while he's just like depressed walking back to his house uh so that's how the movie kicks off uh, I think it's fantastic. Um, Cisco is like, I think like a DJ kind of character. It's it's very similar to Usher, like in She's All That, where they're mm. all dancing to uh, Rockefeller Skate. But um, yeah, Cisco, I think, has everyone do this dance routine in the film. Because the early 2000s was also about um, teen movies just having a choreographed dance routine happen in the middle of a movie for no reason. Wait, is this okay? You said Zoe Saldana and Mila Kunis were in, were in this. Is this the yes. one where they make out? No, that is, that apparently is this 2007 film called After Sex. Oh, okay, much different. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Get Over It is um, it's it's really a film that I feel like has stuck with me for years. I've never forgotten the movie and i feel like i've never forgotten it because of the title i just think the title get over it is a great title for a movie and very much a teen movie from like the early 2000s you know what i'd like to rewatch um speaking of kirsten dunst is i does the cat's meow hold up do we think i don't even think i've seen the cat's meow lewis i all Uh, i know is it was at the beginning of that show the jinx right like because that story is partly based on this or something and so i've always intended to rewatch it and i never did um, I mean, listen, Peter Bogdanovich right. um, r- rarely does wrong. Except for the 15 times he did. But yeah. <laughs> Nickelodeon at long last love. I can go on and on. Yeah. Um, 
anyway, yeah, I mean, I feel like at some point we should revisit Kirsten, most of Kirsten Dunst's discography. There's a lot of, huh, movies in there. Right. Just like, why not sort of things? Because she was in everything. <laughs> um, all right. When we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. Nicole, as our guest of honor, what's yours? Okay. Um, There is a new limited series on Netflix called Obsession, starring Richard Armitage, Charlie Murphy, and uh, Indira Varma. Um, It's a new adaptation of this a novel called Damage by Josephine Hart, which was made into a movie in 1992 starring uh, Jeremy Irons. I love so, that movie. Yes. Okay. So mm. this is all the same, right? And so Richard Armitage is this very well-respected surgeon uh, married to Indira Varma, who is a barrister. And um, they have a great relationship. They have two adult children, one of whom is a son named Jay, who brings home his fiance and uh, Richard Armitage and the fiance, Charlie Murphy, uh, they start having an affair. So the father is sleeping with his son's fiance. And it's only four episodes, thank goodness, because it is so not good. Oh, <laughs> that's it, too bad. <laughs> it's supposed to be this erotic thriller and um Netflix actually recently tweeted out like the um timestamps of when the sex happens in each episode. So like, oh, you know, step if you're watching this with your family, step away. First of all, why would you be watching an erotic thriller with your family in the first yeah. place? Think but first. whatever. Yeah. Famously, I did see the movie Unfaithful with my grandmother, which was a mistake. <laughs> oh, God. <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of my favorite movies, but... Absolute yeah. favorite, one of my favorite films. Diane Lane uh, and Olivia Martinez are so fucking hot in that movie, but I did not need to see that hallway scene with my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I don't know how you survived that, but... Uh, okay, so basically, like, his character, William... It's just like he sees her from across the room and is immediately in heat for her. And every time there's like escalating um, BDSM stuff in their relationship, but it always seems very urgent and lack of care, um, which is, um, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's supposed to be like super intense or whatever, but there's this one scene that is driving Twitter crazy. And uh, so his son and and, um, fiance, they go to Paris. It's set in London. They go to Paris for a little getaway and he follows them basically. And, uh, they screw in an alley. And then when they check, when the son and, and the fiance check out, I can't remember their names because I've just like blanked on everything. So I'm really sorry that I'm not used to their names. This is so bad. Um, so when they check out, he, the father, books the room, goes into the hotel room and like scrounges through the bed looking for her scent like a dog, right? But obviously the room has been turned over. So, you know, hopefully they have changed the sheets. Think so thinking of that, he realizes, oh, maybe her scent is in this decorative pillow 
that would not be changed out as office. So he grabs a decorative pillow and he, you know, huffs it and is like, just like burying his face in it. And then he starts masturbating and humping the bed. And it is so uncomfortable, so unsexy, so desperate and pitiful that I'm just like, why is this supposed to be sexy? Like, I, it's it's not, it's very funny and, and painful to look at. And it's just, I, I was just like, no, I can't, I cannot watch this, but I did, but I should not have. <laughs> the the uh, 92 version with uh, Jeremy Irons and Juliette Binoche, I think is probably one of the best erotic thrillers. And also you get an awesome scene from the woman playing Jeremy Irons' wife, Miranda Richardson, who has a breakdown after this affair bubbles over and the main events of the movie occur. And her, the way she screams at him and, and tells him, uh, you should have killed yourself. I mean, it's like, I mean, I have not seen any kind of scene in a movie like that before. That kind of intensity, that kind of um, wrath come from an actor. She was nominated for an Oscar and lost to Marissa Tomei that year. A fact that gay people still debate to this day. <laughs> I recently watched um, her acceptance speech because I feel like I had never even seen like the lead up to it. And uh-huh. you see all those nominations and uh, People were not having it. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> but what people don't say about that year is that Marissa Tomei's part is so much bigger than all of the performances, with the possible exception yeah. of Judy Davis. It's like, it makes sense. She's doing a lot of comedy in the movie. But anyway, yes, I am so sorry that Damage Show is not good because the source material I find pretty um, naughty in a fun way. Yeah. And, you know, um, and I found out that that scene, the hotel scene, um, Richard Armitage largely improvised it so i I was like you know maybe they need an intimacy coordinator for even masturbation solo scenes i don't know (laughs) we need we need luca uh we need luca directing this scene because one of my favorite sniffing scenes in a movie is um timmy chalamet um sniffing uh army hammer's underwear in uh call me by your name and then like like humping the bed and like, you know, positioning himself on it. Like they were having sex and that was a hot scene. That was a good scene. This one was not. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of Luca and Timmy, my keep it this week um, goes out to not really Timothy Chalamet, but to a response to Timothy Chalamet. So I guess he's dating Kylie Jenner. Now I'm a pop culture fan. The Jenner's Kardashians, not really my universe. I don't know much to say about them anymore, but I will say, People, I I think, are having a sort of knee-jerk, I don't know about gross-out reaction, but I think people need to respect the fact that Timothy Chalamet clearly cares about fame because all he seems to date are people who are related to other famous people. I'm talking about Lourdes <laughs> Leone, Madonna's daughter. I'm talking about Lily Rose Depp, who was the daughter of Vanessa Paradis. And now this person who... I don't know. It just speaks to, it's like, he's like, I'm going to be a famous person. Well, I better be in the constellation of famous people. You know, I better belong. Uh, And I think ultimately, uh, as I've said this before with several superstars, I think what cements a celebrity in people's mind is their association with other celebrities. Ultimately, I think people always underestimate how much Beyonce getting with Jay-Z ended up kind of raising her to another level. And that is not to denigrate any of her work, obviously. But it's literally just people remember you if you have a friend you also can remember, you know? So I'm just saying, I thank Timothy Chalamet for doing this. I'm going to call it a momentary relationship. I'm not really seeing a wedding here. But, um, you know, it just means he's going to be around even longer. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before on the show. I think that 
relationships that become tabloid moments are definitely things that propel people to start up. I mean, even though they're, um, even though the stories go back and forth on like Olivia Wilde, right? People know Olivia Wilde by name now. They know her face by people in the grocery store because of this whole Jason Sudeikis and Harry Styles thing. Right, exactly. When we were getting like our groceries for Coachella this weekend, you know, I'm in the grocery store and I'm just like, she is on every fucking cover. And I did not realize that Olivia Wilde was like running the gossip columns right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you miss like when it was just one person or, you know, uh, like Elizabeth Taylor or something where it's just we can't get enough. And I mean, these people are ruining their lives too. But, you know, Yeah. yeah, exactly. Now she's not just an actor or a director, she's a character in a narrative. You know what I mean? And people yeah. care about their stories, like you and your soaps, Ira. <laughs> <laughs> I sure do. Can't <laughs> wait to log off this and watch today's Days of Our Lives. <laughs> I had one more thing to say about Timmy. Um, this is also going to, like, people confuse that um, Emily Ratajkowski was, like, making out with Harry Styles. And I want to point out Hot people make out with other hot people in their social circles. Mm-hmm. Okay, like if if uh, you know if like gay people were written about by like page six, you would see um, oh this person made out with like three different people this past weekend. It would become like a news story, right? right. Like if you are these two hot celebrities and you are at an event and you're drunk, you're gonna make out with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like precisely. people saying Sean and Camila being back together at Coachella. They're not back together. They were at Coachella watching Bad Bunny, and they decided to make out with each other while they were dancing. That's it. That makes sense. You're, but, you're conferring a, le- a level of cool on them, which I, I hope they're capable of taking. But yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. Oh, I mean, literally, is- I'm thinking of, oh, uh, <laughs> this is what I'm about to admit. Lewis and Matt Rogers making out at Fire Island last summer. Girl, we are not together. We are bored. That is what is happening. <laughs> Not not this tea being spilled. Oh right! I mean, it it, 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 it can't be tea. It's it's like molten rock. There's nothing to spill. Yeah. This is all to say that Tibby is a twink, not a daddy, and he is not going to be raising Kylie Jenner's kids. Oh yeah, so, I am. I am curious about that. Yeah. All right. I mean, at this point, he's sort of like one of Hollywood's pass around men. So <laughs> they're going to date for a bit, and then he will be on to the next girl. I love you phrasing it in the way that someone like Jackie Collins would put it. A pass around man. <laughs> Hollywood pass around men. Yeah. Ira, what is your damn keep up? My keep it this week goes to new media company, Max. Oh, right. If you did not know, HBO Max is now going to be rebranded as Max. And... I would like to know what the fuck Warner Brothers is doing. Basically, like Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav, who is basically the Joker in Hollywood at this point. He's like terrorizing um, TV series, canceling things left and right, pulling things um, from streaming services. Um, but he announced that HBO Max is going to be rebranded as Max, and Max will be the streaming destination for Max and HBO Originals. Warner Brother Films, the DC Universe, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and Kids content, along with programming from HGTV, Food Network, Discovery Channel, TLC, ID, and more. I find it extremely confusing. HBO is prestige, and Max is your nephew. (laughs) (laughs) HBO has been a household name 
for decades. Like you mentioned HBO, you know, you, you know what you're getting, you know, the quality you're getting, you know, um, that you're going to have good actors in it. You know, there's going to be a budget. I don't know what the fuck max is. It's just a word. It's the opposite of men. And it just seems very weird to take, um, especially in this era of branding, right? Like to get rid of a very viable brand uh, and just call something Max now. I don't know what's going on there, but I don't like it. It just, yeah, I, 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 I find it baffling. I, we keep being told that H, the HBO name is a hindrance or that like people can expect a kind of quality, uh, maybe an intimidating level of, programming that they, they're not necessarily up for. They just want something they can veg out to. Maybe HBO doesn't say that to people mentally. But I just can't imagine taking it away from the brand. Also, it's actually shocking how attached I am to brand names. I don't I, I don't know why I'm actually a little bit offended. Like, Yeah, like, I mean, the Keebler elves aren't running out there changing their name. You know, like, you right. know what you're going to get? Well, you got to get Keebler. <laughs> and if anything, like, Sex of the City, I feel like, helped birth hbo you know into its prestige so how about the answer would be just green light some sex in the cities instead of having to change the name to make it more accessible to people who think that you know watching um terry mason um is too much work for them i guess no no it really is baffling to me i don't get it at all well that's our show this week so thank you one to James Marsden for joining us. Thank you to Nicole Perkins for being here. Um, you taught us a lot more about Prince. Well, thank you. I That's my goal in life is to spread the word of Prince. <laughs> Let me shout out, by the way, his first ever single, Soft and Wet. That's probably my favorite uh, single Prince song. And you know who else loves that song? Michelle and Degeo Cella, one of my favorite musicians. Mm, what's, I think they um, work together. But, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm, what's Lady Smith Black Mombazo's favorite Prince song? Well, that's a group, so they probably have individual <laughs> tastes, and if you think they all agree on one, that's your problem. It ain't just one bitch. Let us something new every day. Yeah. And make sure you, of course, listen to the Prince mixtape. The first episode is out today um, as of listening to this episode. So... Go find Nicole there. And thank you again for joining us on Keep It. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to follow us at Cricket Media on Instagram and Twitter. And subscribe to Keep It on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. Plus, if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, that's me, and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for production support every week. And as always, Keep It is filmed in front of a live studio audience.